Thank you for listening to a Christ-centered message from Grace Community Church. We are committed to proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology and trust that you will receive encouragement as we study today's passage together. Today, our text of study is in Romans chapter 8. So if you would, go with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. And today, our verses will be verses 26 through 30. Last time we were in Romans 8, uh, we looked at our previous section and we learned about the glorious hope that believers have uh, given to us through Christ, through the gospel, and given to us through the Holy Spirit that the Holy Spirit ministers to us internally and witnesses that we are God's children, gives us assurance that we are saved. So today we are just continuing in our study, and Lord willing, next time we will uh, conclude this study in Romans 8. And I was just thinking back, it seems it, over a year ago uh, we started this uh, verse by verse, just going through Romans 8, and uh, we'll be finishing the chapter soon, and it's been I'm just enjoying studying through it. So today we are considering, we're looking, the title of the message is, By Grace to Glory. That if you are in Christ, if you have been forgiven of your sins, that is a grace that God has shown you. God has been gracious to you to forgive our sins. And that's where salvation starts for us, is God is gracious. And our salvation, God is leading us somewhere. We're going to glory. And the way we get there is the same way the process all started. God was gracious to save sinners like me and like you. And that's the invitation this morning. That's the invitation of every message, every gospel message is today is the day of salvation. If you turn from your sin and trust in Christ. So as we consider this text, I was thinking about not only the hope of glory that Paul says, if you are in Christ and Christ is in you, we have the hope of glory. That's what all Christians are waiting for. But think about uh, waiting, waiting for something you really want. Uh, maybe it's a holiday or a birthday that anticipation comes or getting to visit with friends and family you haven't seen in a long time. Christians are waiting for heaven. Christians are waiting. We are waiting for the day where we will be with God forever and ever freed from sin to worship our King. So as Paul is writing this letter, he's writing to this church in Rome, and Paul had not planted this church. Paul had not been to this church before. He's writing a letter ahead of time. He's planning. Um, as God is sovereign, we're going to see that in our text, he wants to get to Rome. He is looking for their support. Paul, in his missionary journeys, his aim was to go to Spain and to plant a church there and his plan was, well, I'll stop off in Rome. I heard there's some believers. So he writes him a letter ahead of time. He wants to introduce himself and what he believes. He, it's an, in a way, he's submitting, here's my missionary candidacy. Here's my missionary application. And here's what I believe about the gospel. And not only is Paul introducing himself to the church in Rome, he's also help, trying to help and comfort them. Because in our in our section last time we saw in verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not, are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. See, Paul was aware also that whether the conflict partly between Jews and Gentiles, Roman Christians, there was some internal conflict, some suffering going on in this particular place. So he's also writing to them with their care in mind. He's writing to them to reach out to them and to communicate the glorious truths of the gospel. By faith alone in Christ alone, the believer, it came up in our New City Catechism question, is justified. That means they're declared right before God. But in the meantime, while Christians are here on earth, this is time that God gives to us as a gift. So what are we to do with the time that God gives us? Are we just to sit and wait passively for glory? To wait for Christ to return? I submit not. In the meantime, I don't know why I just said that's just a weird, I submit not. I don't think I've ever said that phrase before in my life. I 
Submit to you that I haven't. Okay. Um, <laughs> followers of Christ are not to sit and wait passively for Jesus to return. Instead, we are invited to have an active part in our Christian life. To bear a godly influence where God has placed us, whether that's in our homes, in our families, in our jobs, at school, wherever God has placed you, he means for you to have a godly influence. And also, God intends for us to advance his kingdom, to work through us and in us, to bear witness to the gospel, and to glorify God where he's placed us. So God has given us his spirit, his word, and his church for our good and for his glory. We get to, as believers, encourage one another to stir one another up in love and hope while we wait for heaven. So here are some, here's some Old Testament examples of while we're waiting, I, I want just to, this will set the, the scene for us for Romans 8. Here's our first, Isaiah 25, 9. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. I want that for every believer. I want that for everyone here this morning to know the Lord, to wait on him, and to be glad in his salvation. Here's a, another Isaiah 30, 18. Therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. There's a blessedness in waiting for the Lord. And then Isaiah 40, 31. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. While we wait for heaven, we have a glorious hope that God gives to us. And that's Old Testament anticipating. Now in Romans 8, this is unfolded for us. So I'm going to pray, and then we will begin just our, our walk through this text. Father in heaven, Lord, I thank you that you are gracious. I thank you that you are willing to save sinners. And the hope that we have in Christ is the joy of your salvation. So I pray that you would help me this morning to communicate clearly your word. The only hope that we have is through Jesus Christ. So I pray you would help me to be clear, and I pray you would open all of our hearts to be ready to receive your word, to be transformed by your word more into the image of Christ that we might glorify you. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you are not there already, uh, we are in Romans 8, so go there with me in your Bibles. Romans 8, I will begin in verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what, it, knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is the word of the Lord. Here's our aim for the message today. God is preparing his people for glory. God is preparing his people for glory. And from our text this morning, we have three truths. Three truths I want each one of you to take to heart. Three truths to encourage us as we wait for heaven. Number one, God comforts us in our weakness. So not only as we are, as God is preparing us for glory, while we wait, truth number one, to 
take to heart is that God comforts us in our weakness. And we see this in verses 26 and 27. This section begins with a likewise, or your Bible might say, in the same way. Paul is joining together uh, what we've just read with the previous section, really verses 18 through 25. Paul has already demonstrated that creation is groaning because of sin and longing to be made new. He's already said that we as believers are groaning. There's sin that remains in us. We are waiting for heaven. And now Paul says that the Spirit groans also, groans with us. Letter A, the Spirit intercedes on our behalf. So the way that God comforts us in our weakness is the Spirit intercedes. We see this in verse 26. The Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. See, because of our present fallen state, when Adam and Eve disobeyed God, all of humanity was fallen into sin. That rebellion took root in our hearts, sinfulness. Our limitation as creation, God is our creator, we are his creatures. We are limited in our capacity. Remaining sin within us, because of these things, we don't always know how to pray. Now sometimes all we can pray is just a word, or we've seen it in Nehemiah even. Lord help me, that, that arrow prayer that Nehemiah prayed. We don't always know how to pray as we ought. We struggle to know God's will. Our faith can grow weak. We can struggle with doubt, or we lack assurance of our salvation. So here, let's take courage and also stand in awe of God, that he is so gracious to us. Jesus promised that he would send the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit who would comfort us, to guide us, be our helper, our counselor. Jesus promised the Spirit would indwell us and transform us. And the Spirit of God can do this perfectly because the Spirit is also God. The Holy Spirit takes up residence within us and he's able to pray for us to the Father. That's that intercession. And where we don't always know God's will perfectly for our lives, God does know his will perfectly for us because he's God. And the Spirit is God. So the Spirit is able to perfectly pray for us. And because the Spirit knows the will of God, those prayers that the Spirit prays for us, intercedes for us, are always answered in the affirmative. Yes, the Spirit knows the perfect will of God and is able to pray for each of us in the exact right way, every moment that we need. And this is for our true spiritual good, for our, our true genuine needs. And as I was just studying and uh, reading some commentaries, this word groaning comes up, and what does that mean? And one illustration I found helpful, uh, and I, I, I find myself relating to this, is when, if you ever help somebody move, or help somebody pick up something heavy, I do this, and I'm not picking up anything heavy. It's my, my water bottle, or I sit down in the car too fast or too slow, and why did I make this noise? I don't know. It's, I've been told it's when you reach a certain age, and I guess I reached it. <laughs> so this, this groaning together, like if, so if you think about this, if you're moving a couch, what's more helpful? Just the lifting together or somebody's, yeah, this couch is really heavy. You got it, though. Keep watch that corner. You know, pivot, pivot. You know, uh, it's more helpful just to groan and carry the load and move on. And in, in that way, I just found it helpful that the spirit groaning for us He's carrying our load, our burden that we are unable to carry on our own. The Spirit helps us in our weakness and does that through interceding our needs directly to the Father. So not only does the Spirit intercede for us, but letter B, the Father knows the depths of our hearts. See this in verse 27. He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So this he who searches hearts, that's God the Father himself. The Father is God, the Spirit is God, and Jesus Christ the Son is God. The Trinity, 
three persons in the one true God are working perfectly in perfect harmony for our salvation. See, Jesus taught his disciples that the Father knows exactly what we need before we ever say a word of prayer. Matthew 6, 8. Do not be like them, Jesus teaching. Don't be like the Gentiles that pray with so many words and repeating themselves. Why? For, Jesus says, your Father knows what you need before you ask him. The Father knows what you need. So we can take comfort that our Father in heaven loves us. He knows our hearts. If you are in Christ, God is our Father in heaven. He loves his children. And God knows how to perfectly provide for his children. God is omniscient. That means his knowledge is without limit. God knows all things. And think about this when the text says the Father, he who searches our hearts. This can be a comforting thing for us that the Father knows our hearts. He knows what we need. And also this can be a convicting thing. The Father knows our hearts. There's nothing hidden from him, nothing hidden from his sight. Letter C, the Father provides what we need according to his will. And this is, again, just from verse 27. As the, as the Holy Spirit intercedes for believers, bringing our needs before the Father, the Holy Spirit is praying for us. He's not, not only is he praying for us, but he is strengthening us to walk in obedience. The Spirit's changing our thinking. And because the Spirit is God and knows the will of God, the Father's always answering yes to the prayers of the Spirit. So what's our takeaway? Our takeaway for us is that God is working in us and through us to always accomplish his will. God's will is, God is powerful and his will will be done. And the means that, one of the means he uses is the Spirit. He uses the Word. He uses the church. Believers ministering to one another. God is always working his perfect will in our lives. So take to heart, God comforts us in our weakness. And not only does God help us in our weakness, but this leads us really to our second point. Number two, our second truth to take to heart is that God is conforming us to the image of Christ. God is conforming us to the image of Christ. We see first a divine promise. This is verse 28. I, I think this is my favorite verse in the entire Bible. Romans 8, 28. And undoubtedly, this is a verse that has given great comfort to many people. And I pray that, that God's word comforts you this morning. Here's verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So let's just break this, let's just break this verse down. Uh, we're we're going to go line by line. Um, first, and we know, there is a confidence that believers have. We can be certain that God will always keep his word. So just think about this. Paul just said, we don't always know how to pray. I don't know, and then verse 20, and we know. So how does this work? How does this balance work for us? And uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones said, that's a pretty good description of the Christian life. We do not know, we know. We don't always know the particulars of God's will for us. But the general principle, the general truth, we do know God's will for us to make us more like Jesus Christ. That doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter what stage of season of life you are in, you can know God's will for you is to make you more like Jesus Christ. And we're going to see why in just a moment. So we can be certain that God's word is true. God's word is sure. God never lies. God never fails or falls short. We have this knowledge by faith. We take God at his word. So for whom does God make this promise? Well, it's for those who love God. This is a promise that God gives specifically to his people. Consider just some of the language. Uh, I pulled through just from our chapter some of the language that 
is used to describe God's people in this chapter. Verse 1, and these aren't going to come up on the screen. I just pulled out the the snippets. Verse 1 says, to those who are in Christ. The word you comes up 13 times in this chapter. Us, we, our, eight times. Verse 14, all who are led by the Spirit of God, here's a qualifier, here's a truth, are sons of God, God's children. Verse 15, you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. If you are in Christ, God has adopted you into his family. Verse 18, the glory that is revealed to us. Verse 21, the children of God. Comes up in verse 27, the saints. All of these phrases are describing Christians, describing followers of Jesus Christ. So from from a, a human perspective, Christians, one of the ways a Christian can be identified as a Christian is someone who loves God. So saving faith, a faith that is a trust in Christ, is more than just an intellectual, I know about God, or I, I read the Bible one time. Saving faith, really to be a Christian, means that your heart has been changed, your life has been changed, your love your affection has changed. I no longer love myself. I no longer love my sin the way that I used to. My worship has changed. My delight has changed. Now I long to worship and to love Jesus Christ. I used to worship sin and self. Now I worship, I glorify, I adore King Jesus. The only way that happens is because God is gracious to save sinners. I didn't earn that. I can't produce that that depth of heart change. That's something that God has to do. Faith means to trust, to rely upon fully, to put one's full weight down. I trust that Jesus and Jesus alone is sufficient to save me from my sin. I wrote that before I even read the New City Catechism answer. That. And we know all things work together for good, okay? This is, God's preaching to me through this own message. To trust in Christ is a humble submission that Jesus is the Lord and Savior and King of my life. I owe my heart, my love, my all, my life to Jesus alone. I exist to follow and serve another That's Jesus Christ, above all else and all others. Does this describe you? And God is gracious that I'm not this perfectly, but in all things, God is making me more like this, to love him more, to trust him more, and that's the whole point of this verse. God is working all things to help me glorify him more and to trust him and become more like him. From God's perspective, a Christian is one who is called We see this in verse 20, called according to his purpose. A Christian is one called by God. God has looked from heaven and called you to himself. He has set his saving love upon you in Christ, adopting you into his family. The means of the means how God does that in you and me is through repentance and faith turning from sin and trusting in Christ. That's the means by which a sinner comes to Jesus. They don't earn our salvation. It's the the vehicle, the the way we get there. Charles Spurgeon is the one who said, repentance and faith are the wings that fly us to the Savior. It is a humble, gracious response that God causes in the hearts of his chosen, set-apart people. Now, what is the extent of this promise? The extent of this promise is all things. When Paul uses the phrase all things, I looked it up in the Greek. The word all things means all things. (laughs) Plain and simple. All things means it is a broad, all-encompassing phrase. Whole, entirety. Paul has in mind everything. Everything that we experience. Everything that we encounter. God is the sovereign ruler over all of creation. 
The Lord said, I have established my throne in the heavens and my kingdom rules over all. Psalm 135. God is in control of everything we face. The blessings, the challenges, and the trials. Now it's easy to say verse 28 when things are going well. The job is successful. Family is healthy. School is easy. But what about when the job is lost? Health is failing. Money is tight. Relationships are hurt. There's difficulties, pain, the sorrow that is caused by sin, tragedy, and death. That's when we're tempted to doubt God's goodness. That's when we're tempted to doubt that God doesn't have the power to, to be in control of all things. These are the moments that it's easy to doubt. But verse 28 is clear. All things work together for good. God has a plan and a purpose in all that we experience in life. Now there are times when God does restrain evil and sin and gives divine protection and grace. And there are times when we go through trial and suffering. For the believer, suffering is used and ordained by God in his great power and his great wisdom to bring about grace and good in our lives. Sometimes God will withhold a grace or a blessing, but he gives another, and in all of it, it is meant to make us more like Jesus. God uses suffering in our lives to strengthen our dependence upon him, that I am humbled, I have to trust in Jesus more, I have to pray in a way I've not prayed before. And it teaches us when we go through trial and suffering to hate our sin and to desire heaven. Here's just one example, James 1, verses two through four. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kind. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Now I have two Old Testament illustrations that coincide with verse 28. The first is when Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And here Moses records in Deuteronomy 8, 15, God who led you through great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions, thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know. Here's the purpose, that he might humble you and test you and the ultimate to do good to you in the end. In all things, God is working for the good of his people, even through the difficulty. Another example is Genesis 50, the story of Joseph when he's sold into slavery by his brothers and then put in jail through Potiphar and all the whole situation. And Joseph sums it all up like this, verse 20, as you, talking to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. You meant it for evil, God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. He's talking about the, the redemption process that took place when there was a famine in the land and Jacob and the brothers and the whole family could go to Egypt and that family line could be preserved so that we have the family line of Messiah, King Jesus, to save us, to do good. So to summarize, uh, J James Montgomery Boyce, he said it this way. All things that have ever happened to us or can possibly happen to us are so ordered and controlled by God that the end result is inevitably and utterly our good. Even the worst things are used to make us more like Jesus Christ. And one more, John MacArthur, he put it this way. No matter what our situation, our suffering, our persecution, our sin, sinful nature, our pain, or our lack of faith, in those things, as well as in all other things, our Heavenly Father will work to produce our ultimate victory and blessing. God's plans are sovereignly ordained that all that comes to pass, His plan is that He is glorified. And as believers, we are invited 
to have a part in that everlasting display of God's glory. And this really leads us to letter B. Not only is, we see in this verse, a, a divine promise, but B, a divine purpose. This is in verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Even though we do not always know the particulars of God's will for us, for our lives, we can be absolutely certain of the general will that God has for all of his children. God's will is for us to become more like Jesus Christ. So that, there's a purpose, his glory, his greatness, his goodness is more clearly seen and enjoyed by more peoples. God gets the glory and we get the joy. So here's how this works. God is working in you and in me to make us more like Jesus. As God is working in us, we, are, we become a greater and greater display of his glory. A greater and greater, we get to magnify King Jesus because more and more of our life is becoming conformed into his image, his likeness, his character. This is where we get the joy, the grace and the blessing to glorify Jesus' name. This is God's purpose in saving us, the glory of Jesus. And we get the joy, the love, the peace, the patience, the goodness, the self-control, the gentleness of becoming more like Jesus. So we see this in our text. We are foreknown and predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And then the purpose, in order that, here's why God is working in us for our good. Here's why God is making us more like Jesus. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Okay, I'm the oldest in my family. I have two younger brothers. So I was thinking about this and the firstborn among many brothers. Hey, that's kind of like me. There was one time my brother wrote me a, a letter. He wrote me a note. He was maybe middle school. And he wrote me a note and he said, Stephen, I'm thankful for you as my older brother. And I want to be more like you every day. And I wasn't even a Christian at that time. But that stuck with me because it's reminded to me the influence that I had as an older brother that I didn't even was aware of at the time. I'd just do my own thing and be disrespectful and rude to my parents. And they would attest to that. That's true. And that stood out to my brothers. And so when Jesus is described here, the firstborn among many brothers... There is this intent that God has for Christ to be worshipped in all his splendor and majesty and beauty, his power, his wisdom, his lordship to be worshipped for all eternity. This firstborn has this preeminent status. That's it, as an example, Jacob and Esau. Esau was the firstborn. He had the birthright, he, the, 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 birthright the, the blessing of being the firstborn. And so God intends for Christ to share the preeminence of being the, the son of glory. And then we get the invitation to be more like Jesus. We get to share in his likeness. We get to worship him. And just think about this. Genesis, God made all of us in his image. God made us in male and female in God's image. But when the fall happened in Genesis 3... That image of God that is inherent to each and every one of us was distorted because of sin. That because of my sin nature, I don't reflect God's glory the way that I was created to. So when God says he is conforming us into his image, he is really restoring the creation that God intended from the beginning of the world to glorify him. If we love Christ, we long to worship him forever and ever because he has saved us from our sin. This is the joy of our salvation. He has made us a part of his family by faith. And there's room in the family for you today. When you turn from your sin and trust in Jesus Christ alone, this good promise, this divine purpose is also meant for you. 
This is the invitation. And this leads us really to our third point. As we consider the invitation of the gospel, this glorious purpose that God has for us, our third truth to take to heart is that God will complete the work he began in us. We see this really in verses 29 and 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And now follow, follow this progression that Paul has laid out for us. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. In these verses, we can see God's plan of redemption unfolding from eternity past to eternity future. Many have described this, this verse, this section, as, as a chain. Uh, it's been called the golden chain of redemption. God is the sovereign worker in our salvation. So I, I've taken these five words, and I, I've, I'm going to break them up into three categories. And I trust that this will be helpful. I hope that it is. When we describe God's work, this work of redemption, the first way we can describe it is that God is sovereign. God's work is sovereign. It's letter A. And I've left some room on your, on your bulletins. You can write these, these words in. We see under God's sovereign work, the first is foreknown. For those whom God foreknew. See, the word here means known in a saving way, known in a loving way. It's not just foresight that God saw all things. It's an intentional, I've set my love upon you. One example of the, the way this verse is, this word is known is in Amos 3.2, where the Lord says, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. And he's talking to Israel. You, Israel, only have I known of all the families of the earth. Does that mean that God doesn't know anybody else on earth? Of course not. It means that this, this known in the Hebrew is, is similar to this word foreknown in the Greek. It is a, it's a loving knowledge, a saving knowledge. Redemption begins with the foreknowledge of God, the plan of God before creation. God's sovereign decision to save sinners for his own glory. That's foreknown. The next word in our chain, predestined. For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined. This means to appoint or determine beforehand. God has determined what he will do with those whom he has set his love upon. He has determined to set his love on a people and then conform them to the image of Christ. And this special people will live to the praise of his glory. Uh, one example is Ephesians 1. 4 through 6, where Paul writes, Even as he, that's God, chose us in him Christ before the foundation of the world, before the world was ever created, chosen by God, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved, blessed us in Christ. So do you see, God's plan of redemption working in us is meant to be to the praise of his glory, to thank you, Jesus, you saved me from my sin, and we get to say that forever and each and every day. Thank you, Lord, for saving me. Thank you, Lord, for forgiving my sin. Lord, I bless your name. That's only because God was gracious to do that in us first. The next word in our link is called. For those whom God predestined, he also called. And there's two ways to think about this word called. There's a general calling that everyone here under the sound of my voice this morning is hearing the call of God in the gospel. You're hearing the, the call to turn from your sin and trust in Jesus Christ. That's the general call. And then there is this effectual call. The call of God produces God's effect in our lives. We also, this is understood as when God saves and regenerates. He causes us to be born again. God's effectual call always produces God's fruit and purpose in our lives. So Thomas Watson, an old Puritan, he said it this way. You can ignore the call of the preacher, 
but you cannot ignore the call of the Holy Spirit. So when God calls you to himself through hearing the gospel, it's an internal work that God does and produces in us faith and repentance. One example of this is uh, Galatians 1, 15 and 16. But Paul is speaking, when he who had set me apart before I was born, who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me. That's this effectual calling. When God gives his grace upon you, he reveals to you the son through faith. Salvation is all of God. He's sovereign. It was planned, initiated, purchased, and fulfilled by Christ. God is sovereign in our salvation. Let her be. And the next word in our chain, a saving. And here that word is justified. Those whom God called, he justified. The call of God in the gospel, through the Holy Spirit, produces saving faith. All whom God calls, effectually, he gives them the grace and the faith and the repentance so they will truly see Jesus for who he is, the Savior of the world. One example is from 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 and 14. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. This word justified here means to be made right with God. In our text, it really means that God has made us right with himself through Christ, through his death on the cross. Our sin can be forgiven and perfect righteousness given to us. And really this leads us to our last letter in our chain, this letter C. Not only is God's work sovereign and saving but it's also secure. This last link in the chain, glorified. Those whom God justified, he glorified. This is the believer's eternal security. There is no break from eternity past when God chose to save a, a people that's sinful. There's no break, there's no disconnect from foreknown to glorified. Just consider this this. From Romans alone, this process of going from from sinful to glory. Romans 3.23 lays it out. For all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. That's where all of us start as sinful humanity. We fall short of God's glory. Then, Romans 5.1 and 2, if we have been justified by faith, verse 2 says we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. There's this, this difference of before God has saved us. Before we trusted in Christ, we have fallen short of his glory. And when God saves us through Christ, when we trust in him, we now go from I fell short of his glory to now I have the hope of glory. Then we saw it in verse 18. Though we experience present sufferings, we are, we are longing for glory to be revealed to us. And our suffering can't compare. Romans 8, 18. And then, he says in verse 30, those whom he justified, he glorified. So each of these words in the chain, foreknown, predestined, called, justified, glorified, all these words in the Greek are set in the past tense. We know that while we're here, while it's called today, our final ultimate glory has not yet been revealed. We're waiting patiently, waiting expectantly for Christ to return. Paul says that this glorified is here in the past tense. Even though we haven't fully experienced the glory that is to be revealed in us yet. And here's why Paul says it's in the past tense. Because the death and life and resurrection of Jesus Christ is so secure. God's plan of redemption is so strong and unbreakable that our glory, our glorification is guaranteed. If we have been justified in Christ Our glory is certain, secure forever in eternity. God's redemption is a work of sovereign grace. So there's a picture that's going to come on the screen. It's a chain, an image of a chain, Lincoln. That's why this this text is called the, the golden chain of redemption. 
Because you cannot take away one part, we can't take away one link of the chain and have it work. You can't break God's plan of redemption. So I went, I went to the store and I picked up a chain, a five-link chain, and I asked the, the lady, can I please have a five-link chain? And had no, why do you need this chain? Of What is five links going to do? I said, it's for a sermon illustration. And she said, okay, and I got the thickest chains we could find, and it took a few minutes to, to cut and to break these. And just as a little illustration, a chain is only as strong as its weakest link. Maybe you've heard that before. Any form or attempted salvation that depends on me, depends on a work that I do, that's not sufficient. Those chain links can be broken. These ones, it took about 10 minutes. We broke these ones. Well, not me, I watched. And they had a special tool that they did it. And uh, that little shield on, she said, you might want to stand back a little bit. And I stand back a little bit. When it comes to God's plan of redemption, his redemption, his salvation for us is unbreakable. God's plan of redemption cannot be broken because God cannot fail. Can we just take that to heart this morning? God cannot fail. And his work through the gospel, through the life of Jesus Christ and his death on the cross, God's plan for us is unbreakable. That no matter what we face in life, God is meaning it for our good that we get to exalt him in all things. The text, the promise is clear. So where do we go from here? And I want just to, to come back to, to thinking about the, this, this promise is set apart for those who love God. The only way that someone truly comes to love God is if their heart has been changed. My heart needs to be changed. The only way God changes our hearts is through his love shown to us through Jesus Christ. So John says it this way, 1 John 4:19. We love because he first loved us. The only reason this text is good news for me is because God set his love upon me and I don't deserve God's love and you don't deserve God's love. We've all fallen short. We've all sinned and disobeyed God our creator and the king of the heavens. And yet God chooses to love us and the invitation then is, do you come to know his love in the gospel, in the life of Jesus Christ? Whenever we're tempted to doubt God's goodness or doubt his plan or doubt his power to work all things for our eternal good, I want you to remember God's sovereignty, verse 28, and the cross. Okay, Acts 2, 23 and 24. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You realize all aspects of our salvation was planned by God. Christ was delivered up by the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed Jesus by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. God's plan of redemption cannot be broken. So when we're tempted to doubt God's goodness, when we're tempted to doubt, is verse Romans 8.20, is that really true? Remember that God took the worst of the worst, the crucifixion of the Son of God, suffered at the hands of sinful men, bearing the wrath of God in our place. God meant it for our good and his glory. So how much more so can I trust him with the sufferings and trials of my life. If God can take the cross and use it for my good, he can use all things that I face for my good and his glory. So John Piper, he, he gives an application that I, I found to be helpful. He writes, the implication, based on th this text, he, just, he said, the implications for our lives are these. Be strong in faith, be unshakable in the assurance that God is for you and will bring you to glory. Be done with fear, be full of joy, be overflowing with courageous love for others. And this truth is, this is the invitation of the gospel. 
that God is for us, and well, we're, it's coming up in our next text of Romans 8. If God is for us, who can be against us? What shall, shall we say to these things? But that's another message. Come back for that one. The bottom line truth is God has done everything for us that we need in the gospel. And I call us this morning, be encouraged and trust in him. And if you've never turned from your sin and trusted in Jesus Christ, today is the day. Don't miss today. The gospel is so good. So let's, let's, let's uh, just review. God is preparing his people for glory. He's preparing you, me, us, his church for glory. And the three truths to take to heart while we wait. God comforts us in our weakness. God is conforming us to the image of Christ. And God will complete the work he began in us. That's Philippians 1.6. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So I have two questions. First, do you love God? Is your life characterized by love and devotion and affection for Jesus Christ? And secondly, what is your next step? to grow in Christ-likeness. Don't leave today without talking to me, one of our elders, small group leaders. We have small groups in the, in the fellowship hall afterwards. If you get connected with the small group, meet, meet with us, talk to us, don't go. We want to take that next step with you. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, you are so good and so glorious. The heavens declare your glory. The sky above proclaims your handiwork. And I thank you that you have chosen to reveal your glory, not just in the heavens, but in the words of Scripture and in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, that you have chosen to create a people to glorify you. Thank you, Lord, that we get to worship you with all of our hearts and minds and soul and strength. And then, Lord, the prayer. Make each one of us more like Christ today. Use your spirit and use your word and use us as a church family to bring much praise, much renown and worship because you are worthy. And then, Lord, we get to share in the joy of knowing you and helping others come to know you. Lord, we love you because you loved us first. And I pray this all in Jesus' name. Thank you again for listening to Teaching from the Word at Grace Community Church. We are located in Richmond, Michigan. You can find us online at mygracechurch.com. Please subscribe and follow us at My Grace Church. It would be greatly appreciated if you would take a moment to rate, like, and share this message. We want you to always remember that you are loved.